from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, you're listening to the CER podcast. I'm Beth Oppenheim, and today I'm with John Springford, the CER's Deputy Director. Hi, John. Hi, Beth. And today we're going to be going back to the CER's evaluation of the cost of Brexit to the British economy so far. So, John, could you just update us? What's your latest estimate and how does that compare to your previous estimates? So the latest estimate is that the British economy is uh, 2.9% smaller than it would have been if Britain had voted to remain in the EU. That's up a bit from the last quarter, which was 2.5%. The reason for that is that the second quarter of growth in the UK this year was pretty awful, minus 0.2. And the countries that make up the kind of fake UK that we put together, the so-called doppelganger, they grew at a faster rate than the UK, which is why it rose. So yeah, that's where that's where we are. That's where we're at. It's not looking good. It's mm-hmm. not looking good. And are there any particular types of economic activity that seem to be suffering more than others? So, I mean, if you think about, I don't know if, if you did A-level economics or whatever, but so there's consumption plus government expenditure plus investment plus exports minus imports is sort of the really bald way to look at overall economic activity. And the the way that we do this cost of Brexit allows us to compare the UK to a kind of a UK which we've put together, which is made up of a group of other countries whose economic characteristics are most similar to those of the UK and whose path of GDP before the referendum happened were most similar. And if we compare the UK to the doppelganger, UK as we call it, then consumption is about two percentage points down. So consumption has held up reasonably well better than the economy as a whole people have been eating into their savings a bit but trade exports and imports have both been pretty weak there's a five point gap between the doppelganger in the UK so the UK has become a bit more closed to trade which is the opposite of what we were promised in the referendum by the leave campaign Um, and then investment is eight points down investment has only grown by two percent since the referendum which is a, a, a terrible performance and really stores up a lot of trouble for the future. It's been shrinking over the last year or so, investment. So investment is really important to productivity. Um, So imagine if you invest in a new computer, which is a lot faster, um, if you're a computer programmer or something like that, then you'll be able to get more work done. So overall, different areas of economic activity have all been worse, according to our analysis, than than if the UK had remained. But the really big hit has been to investment, which is quite troubling. So not a rosy picture at all. Given the poor state of the economy, you might expect that Remain would be streets ahead in the polls, but that isn't the case. Why is that? Well, the first reason is that the economy hasn't done nearly as badly as George Osborne said in his infamous short-term economic forecast, where you know he predicted that there was a recession and unemployment would go up. Um, And I suppose the best way to think about the way that the cost of Brexit has shown up so far is a kind of boiling frog syndrome. The economy is still growing, has been growing apart from the very last quarter, but it's been growing slower than would have 
been the case had Britain remained in the EU and me stumbling over my words there shows how difficult that mm. is to sort of campaign on as mm -hmm. an argument and counterfactuals are easy to dismiss um, you know plenty of people on Twitter have dismissed the arguments and the analysis that that we've put together I also think there's a bit of fatalism after years of quite weak real wage growth since the Great Recession and I, and I think people are, have become a little bit inured to that um, and then the final reason is just that people are really dug in to their their positions and mm. remain or leave. And as much as people like us want everybody to focus on policy and economic outcomes and wages and living standards and so forth, Brexit has become an identity issue. Mm. Um, uh, if it wasn't before, I mean, it clearly was before the referendum too, but even more so. And so the economic arguments which we and others put together uh, only have so much so mm. much impact i think if we had some sort of event such as no deal which caused unemployment to rise the extent to which it would cause unemployment to rise is in question but if it did then you might see more people changing their minds but i think the fact that it's kind of slower growth you know we could have been better off that those kinds of arguments don't seem to be getting through and there's a question about whether even more dramatic economic arguments cut through anyway, given that during the referendum campaign, a lot of the Remain arguments that were being articulated by the campaign were all around, you know, it then became branded as Project Fear, but mm. people are articulating the quite severe economic consequences. But even then it didn't cut through. So I, I don't know whether you have a, a, any thoughts about how to overcome that gap between what, what is salient with the public and what's clearly in the public interest. I mean, one one way that you can get through that is um, by doing some of the things that my colleagues have been doing, like uh, Sam Lowe has been doing on trade, which is focused very much on nitty gritty and like real tangible, understandable problems rather than these airy abstract concepts like GDP, which really matter, but which people find quite hard to conceptualise. The other, the other point that I think we should make, though, is that the reason why no deal hasn't happened and I don't think will happen is because, you know, people like Boris Johnson and even some of the people to the right of him in the, in the Brexit argument realise that that kind of sudden event, which would have clear bad effects on the economy and people would notice, could really change people's minds about um, Brexit. And so my sense has always been that probably the most likely outcome is that we'll have a sort of a lengthy slow brexit however much both johnson and the eu want to want us to leave quickly simply because it's too risky to do do anything else yeah and of course boris johnson has a legacy to protect so he's unlikely to do something that will thwart that last question really from me is in february philip hammond spoke about the idea of a so-called deal dividend arguing that if parliament were to vote may's withdrawal agreement through then an end to the Brexit uncertainty, the ongoing uncertainty, could generate some economic growth for the UK. Let's say there's a general election, Boris Johnson gets a majority, and he's able to get his withdrawal bill through Parliament. What do you say? Do you think that there'll be a, a lovely deal dividend for the UK? I don't think there will, actually. Um, the reason being that the transition is due to end at the end, end of December 2020. And... While I don't think that no deal is going to happen, there's going to be, you know, more uncertainty about what 
the ultimate outcome will be, even if, you know, the general election is won by Johnson and the deal goes through and we'll be straight back into arguments um, about how the UK is going to pay money into the EU's finances for the transition if it's extended after December 2020. That debate's going to kick off in, in May, June. There will be huge debates about whether the UK should sign up to some of the stringent conditions which the EU is going to demand on level playing field issues for a fairly minimal free trade agreement. So I don't think that we're going to see some big bounce. I think that we're going to continue to see slower growth than would have otherwise been the case. And we will try to try to come up with ways to kind of demonstrate that. Final point that I just want to make is that there has been a kind of growing error in the model that we've been using. You know, we still think it's worth thinking about and considering, and obviously 2.9% is an estimate, but because it relies on countries which are similar to the UK before the referendum and then kind of projects that fake UK forward and compares the UK to it, some of those countries might have sudden shocks, which have nothing to do with Brexit, which affect their economic performance. And that's true of the US because Trump has cut taxes, which has stimulated the economy. And it's it's kind of true of Germany because it's really affected by falling Chinese demand. The Chinese economy has been doing quite quite weakly so those two things kind of offset each other which is why we were fine about putting this estimate out but I think it's going to be our last one so we're going to have to come up with new ways to think about the cost of Brexit in the future. Okay well thank you very much for giving us your last estimate and I'm sure as you say the conversation won't be over so thanks very much John. Thanks Beth. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CR underscore EU.